BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show, the classicist, a special summer military edition where Victor is going to be talking today about the world wars. I'm Jack Fowler the director of the Center for Civil Society at AmericanPhilanthropic.com. But more importantly, for the purpose at hand, I'm the co-host of this show. So our host, Victor Davis Hanson, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Wayne and Marsha Busk Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. People, please consider going regularly to victorhanson.com. That's Victor's website, private papers, where there is a ton of original material published there weekly. If you're on Twitter, please follow Victor at at VD Hanson. If you're on Facebook, check out VDH's Morning Cup back on his website. Do look for the link to subscribe to Victor's weekly email, The Weekend Review, and also Click on the uh, link for the Dying Citizen, Victor's forthcoming book. It'll be out in October, but you can buy it now and it'll show up at your door on publication day. Victor, today you're going to indulge me this uh, last year, summertime, and it's good. And we find a break to talk about you know one of those areas of obvious great interest to you, and that's military history. And in 2017, uh, you wrote a book on the second, well, I'll say it's the Second World War. That's what people thought was going to happen. And of course, one would think like, oh, another book on Lincoln, another book on Churchill, another book on the Second World War. But what you produced was a truly different, highly acclaimed new perspective on what you call the Second World Wars, plural. And the subtitle is How the First Global Conflict was fought and won. So on today's episode, we're going to talk about this book and about one of the wars. But first, you need to listen to this. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We are back with the Victor Davis Hanson show, The Classicist. This is a military uh, edition of the show. Uh, Victor is the author of The Second World Wars. And on today's episode, two or three questions. One is what motivated Victor to write this book in this way? What was the inspiration to look at this colossal historic event from the perspective he did? Then we're going to talk about one of the wars of the Second World Wars, and that's the war between Finland and Russia, the Winter War. And then if we have a little time, maybe we can talk about one of the other wars. I'm curious if Victor, if you would consider it one of the of the wars uh, that 
is housed in the general your general concept. So let's begin with before we get to Finland and Russia, which is a particular interest to me and I would believe of many of our listeners. Victor, why did you write this book in the way you did? What was your inspiration? Was there an inspiration? Was there a, a eureka moment? Tell us how this book came about. As I said in the preface, I grew up with stories in my family. Um, my mother's first cousin, Belden Holt, was killed in Normandy or shortly after. I sh- excuse me, Holt Cather, and then Belden Cather, his brother who visited us, was uh, disabled. He had had dinghy fever in the Philippines and had some brain damage. And my father flew on a B-29 for 40 missions. His first cousin, who grew up as his brother because his Victor's mother died in childbirth. His father was blind. Uh, he died on Okinawa, and I was named after him. And, and then my uncle, by marriage, was in Alaska during the, the landings, uh, the Midway campaign, the Japanese landing. So we, I heard of, that was something I'd always so I've been reading and writing about World War II. And I had mentioned it in other books, Okinawa, just to take one example, in uh, Ripples of Battle. But... I was also influenced that John Keegan wrote a book called The History of Warfare, where he looked at things topically. I'm not sure it worked, but it was an imaginative where he said, you know, stone. He did it chronologically, but he thought that there were periods in history. But the main impetus, Jack, was there's 7,000 books written on World War II, and they're one of two types. They're either the majority on micro campaigns or generals or weaponry, or they're chronological surveys. So I wanted to do both, but I didn't know how to do it. So I came up with the idea that there was not a world war as we define it from September 1st, 1939 to September 2nd, 1945. There were a lot of wars and people at the time, at least till uh, December 7th, 1941, did not see it as a continuum. There were wars in Western Europe between 1939 and the invasion of the Soviet Union by Germany and its allies almost 4 million people on June 21st, 1941. And then that was a second stage. And they still did not quite use the word World War. They still talked about World War. And one way that you can do it, I should say, is you. how did people refer to World War I? Do they talk about the Great War or the World War? Or did they say World War I? Right. That term World War I did not come into common use until after Pearl Harbor. And then the third stage was two things happened. Uh, The United States was attacked and Britain was by the empire of Japan on December 7th and 8th. And more importantly, in some sense, Adolf Hitler followed by Mussolini declared war in the United States on December 11th. And had he not done that, I'm not sure we would have declared war in Germany preemptively, given we had our hands full with Japan. So I wanted to say there were a lot of wars and show how they were grouped together into this construct. And then the second thing is, I wanted to say this was the first global war. There were areas in World War I that were fought outside of Europe, of course. But what I was trying to say here is not just was every continent, and I mean that literally, uh, whether it was the Graf Spree sinking in uh, Latin America or North Africa campaigns or the Japanese in Asia or the supply lines and fights just over Murmansk and, you know, the, the Arctic Circle lend lease supply to Russia. But what I also wanted to do was say it was so different. There were these huge tank wars at Kursk, and it had nothing to do with what it would be like in a B-17 with strategic bombing that 
you know, right. 80,000 British and American flyers. And that had nothing about to do with the U-boat that killed 40,000 Germans. Or the surface clashes like the Bismarck or the great air wars at uh, Midway or Coral Sea or the jungle fighting in Burma or the traditional infantry slogs that you saw in Western Europe in 1944 or the invasions of Sicily. So there were so many different types of fighting that it was hard to think of that this was, it wasn't quite what we saw in Iraq right. or and there were air and naval, but there was really no naval war in Afghanistan. There's landlocked country. There was supply, you know, supply ships coming off carriers, supply planes. There was no real naval war in first or second Gulf Wars, except for some sorties. But this thing, this thing, this World War One had every imaginable weapon and uh, theater of operations, as well as these micro wars that became aggregated into one. Right. Victor, the book is, uh, look, we're not here to sell books, but we're gonna, I'm going to try anyway. Uh, the book is a bestseller. I, I assume 85, 90,000 copies have sold since it was published. It is a big, uh, meaty book. And the last thing I'll say about it for our listeners who have not gotten it and who are uh, history, military history buffs, it's broken down, as you were saying, basically into these kind of concepts, air, water, earth, fire, people. And then you also have ideas and how it, uh, how it concluded. So this is the Second World Wars, how the first global conflict was fought and won. I want to talk about the war between Russia and Finland, one of these wars. But it struck me, of the wars, what would you say was the first one? Well, the war started, the European war, when Germany on September First and second invaded Poland, and then it was joined under the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact by the Soviet Union, dividing Poland in two and invading from the east. That trigger that was over with. I mean, the French made a half-hearted effort to go into the Saarland, but that was over by October first. And there were people, believe it or not, who said, "You know what? The Maginot Line and the mighty French army that never broke at Verdun is going to stop the Germans." And had the French invaded Germany from the West, they might have been very successful had they wanted to fight because Germany was very uh, vulnerable. And they, took, they lost about 25,000 dead. And then in the following spring, they went into Scandinavia and the Norway campaign in April. And then they invaded the so-called low countries by going around, remember, the Maginot Line through the Ardennes. And they took Luxembourg, and the Netherlands and Belgium, and then that terrible fall of France. And that was basically from May 10th to 46 days into the middle of June, however you want to have define the last day. And nobody thought that this army of 3 million people that had the Char tank that was better than the German Mark III and even probably comparable to the new Mark IV, the Dwight fighter plane was at least as good as the BF-109, and the whole thing collapsed. We can talk about that, but it had something. Uh, but yeah, but I guess authorized command. And then that was over, Jack. So people right. thought he's got all of Northern Europe, Western Europe, and he's got a peace treaty with Russia. And the United States is not going in. And Japan has got its hands full with China. And he's won. And people were in Germany, if you look at contemporary documents, were saying there was a blitz that started then immediately in July and August. 
But by February of 1941, it was unsuccessful. And then the British continued to fight in North Africa because the Italians could not sustain uh, the, the British Eighth Army. Right. And, and then things started to get a little messy because the Yugoslavian government rebelled. Greece was felt to be a problem if you're going to invade the Soviet Union. So in April and May, right before the invasion of the Soviet Union, March, April, and May, the Wehrmacht went into Yugoslavia and then they bailed out the Italians that were stuck in Albania and they defeated Greece and they took Crete. This has some importance because when they went into Russia a month later, whether or not that was delayed because of the weather, they were short about 100,000 crack troops and about 2,000 to 3,000 fighter planes and 1,000 transport planes that would have been very handy. Right. And they were short about 500 tanks. They had a huge army, but they had taken considerable losses to the British in the Battle of Crete, in the Battle of Greece, and in the fall of France, as well as to the French. We never so, think Victor, you indulge my lameness here. Japan's invasion of China, Italy's invasion of war with Ethiopia, and even the Spanish Civil War, which we know was a training ground for Russia, Germany, and Italy all involved in that. Would you not consider them wars that are part of the broader plural concept? Well, they were preliminaries. And they were, people say, take the Spanish Civil War. 36 to 39, that was a a showcase of whether, you know, Blitzkrieg or armored warfare or strategic bombing. And Italy and Germany were ahead of the Western people because they survived the Depression better and they were armed. And the, the Western powers did not intervene on behalf of the loyalists, probably because they were communists, a lot of them. The Soviet Union did. And the case of Somalia in East Africa, uh, Mussolini, that was ironic because any time the British, who had the largest fleet in the world until 1943, when the Americans surpassed them, could have shut down the Suez Canal. And for all of Mussolini's braggadocio about his new six battleships, he would have been in trouble. He could have never supplied Italian troops there. That was right. the only victory Italy ever won in World War II. Rub it in. <laughs> and they, yeah, and it was very brief. And they, they expelled the British from East Africa. Right. And uh, so these wars were, were fought. But I don't, and in China, Japan, of course, the Manchurian War and along the Mongolian border, that was important because right before the invasion of Poland, Marshal Zhukov was fighting the Japanese right. and uh, along that border. And he was more or less successful. Japan, remember, had westernized that right before the Russo-Japanese War of 1905 and 6. And so they had parity in aircraft and naval forces with the West. What I mean by that is the Zero Fighter or the, the Akagi or the Kaga aircraft carrier were comparable to the best of what, but they were way behind in terms of artillery, personal arms, machine guns, and armor especially. And that really proved true when they fought the Soviets. And that was very important because quickly that was settled uh, before the Polish war began. And then it would come back to haunt Germany and Japan because there were people who suggested that when Hitler got in trouble, not that he wanted the Japanese to help 
But when he got in trouble in December of 1941, there was enormous effort to get the Japanese who had not attacked in Pearl Harbor yet, first, second, third, fourth of December, and even in November, to invade Russia from the east. And had they done that and just inherited the orphaned European colonies and maybe attacked Britain, that is, they took Singapore, they took the Dutch East Indies for oil, they got British rubber in Malaysia, they got, and they did go into French Indochina and got the rice basket of Asia. But had they just done that and not attacked Pearl Harbor, but invaded the Soviet Union from the east, then Stalin would not have transferred 20 divisions to defend Moscow on Trans-Siberian Railroad. He would have had a two-front war. But they didn't do that for two reasons. Hitler did not want them originally because he said, we're going to do the work and they're going to clean the carcass. And we don't want to share the spoils. That was quickly dropped and he would change his mind in December, as I said. But more importantly, the Japanese Navy had said to the army, you did not do well in 39 and don't go back there again. And it's the Navy's turn. And so there was an inner rivalry between branches of the Japanese military. Well, Victor... Fascinating to me, and I assume many others, is the winter war between Finland and the Soviet Union. Finland didn't exist as a country until 1917. It had been part of Sweden, lost in the early 1800s to Russia in a war, the Finnish war. It becomes a duchy or a duchy. However, it depends on if you're from Bronx or Brooklyn, but it's a Russian autonomous zone that eventually uh, Nicholas II tried to russify, but could not. And then uh, he got bumped off and Lenin takes over. And Lenin was a tool of the Germans. World War I is still in full bloom. And the Germans pressure Lenin to recognize the Finns who now claim independence as a nation. And so here is Finland, now it's nation. There was a civil war there of whites versus red. And the whites won, the whites were led by the famous General Gustav Mannerheim, who 20 years later was still the most important figure in Finland. But 20 years later, Finland is a nation that borders Russia's Northwest. And It has three to three and a half million people. Russia has 168 million people. The the size of the army, the amount of tanks, airplanes, it is comically out of whack what the firepower and manpower that Russia has compared to Finland. Russia seeks Finnish territory under the guise of needing security. Finland rejects the claims. Russia attacks And what should have been another lopsided quick war did not happen. So I'm curious your analysis of this war and what, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about people as people, but is there anything that you might say about the Finns as a fighting people, if that can be said? Well, there was a lot of terrible miscalculations on the part of Stalin and the Russians. And the war posed a lot of paradoxes for the Allies and Hitler as well. But you start off with the idea that Finland had been part of Imperial Russia. And then when the revolution ended and World War I was ended, as you said, Russia lost its control of a lot of Finland. And the communists were in no position to complain. But in 1939, they were because they had a non-aggression pact with Germany who was close with its Scandinavian allies. And uh, more importantly, 
they felt they had been cheated out of Finnish territory. And now, because America was isolationist and Britain was soon to be facing a blitz and Hitler occupied by November uh, 30th, when the so-called war started, he had already occupied and they had divided up together. So add all that up and Stalin said, we can get back this that the revolution lost and Hitler won't do anything because we helped him in Poland and we're now de facto allies. And the Europeans never helped Poland, so they're not going to get involved. They're scared of Hitler. So now is the time to go in. But the problem with all this was that Stalin had a lot of problems, but the biggest was that he had liquidated his officer corps in 36, 37, 39. So he had non-entities. They had a lot of bright ideas about training, but they did not have uh, these weapons in full development, the T-34 tank, these 155-caliber guns, Katushka, all that is in the design stage. And they're facing some guy called Mannerheim. You talked about him, Carl Mannerheim, who was an absolute genius. And more importantly, had been an officer. I think was in the Russian Imperial Army. He knew how Russians fought. He knew Russian fluently. And he was willing to fight. And he understood that this would have complications for Stalin because he was backed by Germany and he was backed by Britain and the United States, at least informally, because everybody wanted to stand up to the Soviet Union. And Hitler understood that. And yet Hitler didn't want to offend Stalin yet. So it was very hard to see who was supplying whom. But then basically from the end of November all the way into March of the next year, Stalin threw almost a million men into this very cold, wintry climate. And they were traditional Russian troops, not that they weren't winterized, but they weren't winterized like the Finns were, who were on skis. They were uh, defending their territory, not attacking. And when it was all over, they lost about 25,000 dead. I think the Soviets lost about 170,000. And that was very important because Stalin was forced then to concede and have a truce and take a small sliver of Finland. But it made a profound impression on Hitler. And he said to himself, when we had this idea to divide Poland, I got to my embarkation point quickly. And then I went through where I was supposed to meet the Soviets more quickly than the Soviets did. They didn't do well in Poland. They liquidated their office corps. And now look what they've done in Finland. They could scarcely beat the Finns. And everybody thought, well, the Finns are Scandinavian. Swedish, Sweden is Norway. Denmark will be shortly overrun and uh, Norway was going to be emasculated. But the Finns were not quite like the rest of the Scandinavians. They were far more martial. They had a brilliant commander in Mannerheim. The guy lived, I mean, he was just indestructible. He lived into his 80s. And so that gave, I think, Stalin an unrealistic idea of how easy it would be. And once that he was rebuked, that was a very important event because Hitler, when his generals said, do not go into Russia, some of them did. I know a lot of them lied later that they didn't, but a lot of them did. And they said, why would you go in when they're supplying us oil and grain and et cetera, et cetera. And Hitler said, look, they can't fight in Finland. They killed their officer corps. They didn't fight well. It's going to be a rollover. So it had a lot of repercussions strategically for misreading history, as I should say. But they yeah. were courageous. And then when the war actually started, Mannerheim was very brilliant. So when they he, he was in charge of meeting the invading German army around St. Petersburg, Leningrad. 
but he was very careful what he did. He said, we're only going to fight and occupy Finnish territory and help them take Leningrad. And as the Germans did very well in the first, they got there within six weeks and they were, they encircled the city. But had the Finnish been more offensive minded, they might have helped Germany take it, but they were very careful. And so while they had a half a million man army that was superb and, and protected the shoulder of the German army, they never actually went that far into Russian territory. So when Germany collapsed, Mannerheim was able to say to the Soviets, look, when you guys were down, we didn't take advantage of you. Our point is that you invaded us and you occupied our territory. Now we're willing to make territorial concessions given our disputed history. But if you want to come in, even with your enormous power, we're going to do what we did in 39. Or if you give us our autonomy with some territorial concessions, we will be neutral in any disagreements that you have. So that was the deal that countries like Al, we use the word Finlandization today, but they were not to be a member of NATO, like Austria was not to be a member of NATO. Right. And uh, they survived as an independent yeah. country. Well, I, I almost strategic brilliance and diplomatic, military, etc. I mean, it didn't end up being Bulgaria, right? But Victor, on the Russians' uh, weakness in Finland, mirror, bouncing that off of the Russians' ability to easily handle the Japanese action in Eastern Russia, is the difference of doing well in one place and poorly in another all about General Zhukov or were there other factors? The main difference was that the Japanese army was suffering from a victory disease in the 30s, and that is it was unleashed against Asian countries that were not fully equipped. Or I, I can use that chauvinistic term, westernized, and by that I mean coordinated artillery attacks, uh, close ground support, and the Japanese were. They had sent military advisors to learn from the German army, the French army, but the problem was that as an island country, all island countries, Britain was no exception, they specialize in air power and sea power. Not that they're not good on the land, but Japan was never able to fight a sustained war on the ground in China and win. I mean, they take over the whole country. They right. were good in island fighting on the defensive. But what I'm getting at is they were not comparable to a Western army very quickly at the beginning, maybe. But if you look at tanks and artillery and ground support, just wasn't there. That is in contrast to the Navy. When the war started, Japan, at least in the Pacific theater, outnumbered the American fleet at Pearl Harbor and was, you could make the argument, was quantitatively better. And by that, I mean their aviator corps was better, their ships were better, their ships were newer. The United States fleet was larger, but it was divided between Europe and the Pacific. So in the Japanese way of thinking, when they looked at their fighter craft and some of their dive bombers, they said, we have parity or even superiority. And so if we attack Pearl Harbor and we get in a war at sea and in the and naval warfare, but we don't get into a ground war, we're going to do really well. We do not want to get tied down again with the Russians. And we don't want to get tied down any more than we have to in China. Right. Would so you say an exception to that is Singapore as a ground war, a battle? Is uh, I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but Japanese yeah, but Army yeah. versus British Army. 
That was a very strange campaign because it was an amphibious campaign. Remember, Singapore was this island city-state, and it was superbly protected with naval guns, permanent emplacements, but they were pointing out to sea. And they had the visiting Task Force X that was supposed to have a carrier, but it only ended up with the Prince of Wales and the Repulse. But those were the two of the most powerful British ships in in the world. And they had hurricane fighters that were placed there. And these fighters had done very well in the Battle of Britain. So the British idea was that we are protected. But nobody in their right mind thought that the Japanese, after they took Southeast Asia, would have a huge air force. And they would have carrier craft. But mostly they were land-based craft from Southeast Asia. But more importantly, the British did this because they didn't think anybody could go through the Malaysian jungle and attack Singapore from the rear. And the Japanese had practiced these types of tactics in jungle conditions, even though when they came out of the jungle and approached Singapore, they had about parity. There was only about 75,000 battle-ready troops left. And they were out of food and everything. But the British had no mechanisms to turn their permanent emplacements and pound them successfully. They panicked, they repulsed. And Prince of Wales, these marquee ships were sunk by Zeros and Tonys and other Japanese aircraft. And they were demoralized and they surrendered, which Churchill said was the worst day in British history, right up to Brooke later on. But that was kind of, I don't want to say amphibious, but that was not a grind them down western open terrain it was right. infiltration through the jungle and they used bicycles a lot on jungle paths and then an advanced expeditionary force the japanese just did not want to fight in situations in which the army was on its own against a western army and right. they had learned that even in places like The closest they got was the Philippines. And in every one of these scenarios, their strategy was to be on the defensive, dig in, never surrender, and cause a degree of Western casualties and fatalities that they won't endure. In other words, if we can lose, kill one of them for every eight of us, then they will stop at some point. Everywhere from Tarawa, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, the Philippines, Guadalcanal. And they didn't realize that actually somebody from Bakersfield, California, or Dayton, Ohio, if he was in the U.S. Marine First Division, as we know from the memoirs of E.B. Sledge, you could train a a person who from a pacifist tradition, and you could equip him in such a way, even as early as 1942, where they could go one-on-one with hardened Japanese soldiers that had been fighting in China, in some cases, at least the officer corps, and beat them. And we did in Guadalcanal, even though we were we had five naval battles, and I think we lost two of them. The end of mid to late 1942, we only really had one operational carrier in the Pacific. They rested either, you know, Lexington was sunk, the Yorktown was sunk, Saratoga was torpedoed, the Enterprise had been attacked, and the Wasp was sunk, and the Hornet was sunk. And then the Japanese were starting to get encouraged. And, they, and then thanks to a guy named Carl Vinson and the Naval Acts, we immediately put in 17 X-6 carriers, each of them better than either the American or the Japanese existing fleet. We put in eight battleships. Victor, you write about this, uh, I think, brilliantly in, in the book, The Second World Wars, in the naval section, which is called Water. I thank you for indulging 
my uh, desire to talk about the Winter War and one of the, I think one of the more interesting wars in history of, of mismatch with an unexpected outcome. Victor, that's about all the time we have today for this episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show, The Classicist. We're going to be back next week with more episodes of The Classicist, The Traditionalist. Those are two of the versions of the show that I do. Sammy Wink, the great Sammy Wink, does The Culturalist with you. We encourage our listeners to follow them all. And if you are listening to this podcast on iTunes, go to Stitcher. Google Play, et cetera, whatever floats your boat. God bless. Please subscribe if you're on iTunes, though we kind of recommend you. Please consider giving a review, hopefully five-star review for Victor's Brilliance, and leave a comment if you wish. Maybe stick a question in there if you feel like it. I'll, we, read the, we read the comments, and if we can glean questions, we'll try to ask them. Again, the title of the book is The Second World Wars. You can find it on Amazon. A great book, great gift to you know, someone in your life who likes military history. Victor, thank you very much for the wisdom you shared today. And we'll be back soon again with another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show, The Classicist. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening again.